0: Welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host this morning. I'm joined by Alistair and Andrew. Derek uh, is somewhere off studying or reading or tweeting or whatever Derek does when he is not with us. Uh, We're so delighted that you could listen in to our little podcast. Uh, We've got a great show on for you today. Um, We are returning to the book that we have been talking through, uh, C.S. Lewis's *The Four Loves*. If you're just joining us and you're sort of right in the middle of this whole scheme, we've uh, the last sort of two months or so uh, we've been slowly discussing the various chapters in Lewis's classic classic work. And this week we are taking up the next chapter, unsurprisingly, uh, since we've been following them in sequence as generally people do uh we're taking up the next chapter which is eros um uh it's a fun subject it's one that i care a lot about uh and i'm very intrigued to hear uh people's takes on so uh Andrew, would you give us the hottest hot take you can possibly have on Lewis's?
1: Uh, <laughs> what, what would a hot take on Eros actually be? I'm going to quote you. I, the I other mean, time. I will do my best, but, but keep it keep, it, keep it PG for us, though. You know, like <laughs> it, it is genuinely quite a, a hot take for me in the sense that i I read this I read this book in the last 48 hours, from beginning to end. I, I had never read it before, oh. uh, which I assume I'm probably unique. Well, no, I imagine you guys had read it. Many times, and so I'm having the joy of being able to read it for the first time. And it was actually I did this thing of trying to read 100 books this year, so this was my 100th book. So it was really exciting at both levels to sort of culminate both that series and then listen to you guys discuss it on the podcast and read it in the last two days. So it's all it's very fresh. And so a couple of a couple of musings about the book as a whole, which I haven't been able to chip in in the last conversation, but and then to talk more about this chapter. The thing that I'm if you have if you're listening and you haven't read the book the thing that struck me the most, which I don't think you'd picked up so much in the discussions so far, was uh, just what a wise pastoral manual it effectively turns out to be, how incredibly insightful as a book for pastors or for people who are involved in pastoral care it is, because it, not just because it disentangles the the different kinds of love, but just applies. And you talk about Lewis as a wonderful observer and effectively amateur psychologist of great measure and insight. But I think I was just noticing this is, this should be required reading for people who are in pastoral ministry, and I was recommending it to loads of people yesterday on our staff. Just saying, this is a this is the kind of book you should read if you're involved in caring for people. It's a really helpful text in that respect. So I just reading the book as a whole and just thinking, this is bright and witty and interesting, but particularly with pastoral application. So that's a sort of broader thing. Um, turning to to this chapter, what I, I I thought a couple of things about it seemed to me to be. Um, quite different from the other chapter the the three other loves if you like the three other the way he handles the other three the most obvious of which i guess is that he calls the chapter eros rather than what whereas the others he uses english words it says affection and friendship and charity but this one he says just leaves it with this greek word untranslated and i was kind of i found that interesting on its own just the fact that he was there was whether it's deliberate to preserve a sense of mystery or whether it's because he doesn't think that romance, which I suppose is the word I might think he meant in English, doesn't quite work. He's obviously talking about being in love, which you can't really call a book friendship, affection, charity, and in love. So maybe, but I would have just thought this was a book about, this was a chapter about romance and he, and he deliberately doesn't do that. And he's also quite careful to disentangle it from effectively the desire for sex, which is pretty much what I as, you know, ignorant, reader came in thinking this is going to be about sexual love is how i would have understood what he meant and he he's, was quite careful to distinguish between the desire for sex itself and the desire for a particular person that comes in the form of being in love with someone so says no we're going to call sex venus from now on the desire for sex is like the desire for venus whereas the being in love we're going to call eros and i thought that was quite an interesting distinction because erotic in english generally seems to mean it's you know not just sexual love actually but sort of something which is which is sexual as actually he's saying i'm i would almost call that based on venus venereal rather than based on eros erotic which i thought was fascinating and because of the negative resonances of venereal quite an interesting rhetorical move as well so i I, those are a couple of initial i've got a number of other thoughts as well but just those just getting us started I, i wonder if either of you had uh i don't know thought that there was something intentional in the untranslatedness of that word and whether you think he's trying to do something clever that i've missed which i wouldn't surprised by at all um but those are the two things just straight up on the first few pages that struck me and then there were some fantastic sections later we can discuss in a bit to my mind the
2: untranslated word is not just about the um original greek concept or anything like that or the difficulty in translating that into english i think it's more about the fact that eros for um lewis is not just a type of love it's a personified force um So throughout the chapter, he talks about Eros and Venus as um, personified forces, godlike forces that are at work within us. Yes, he does. We need to handle them in that sort of way as something that can overtake us. Um, I'm reminded here a bit of some of the things that Barfield says in Saving the Appearances, the idea of being overtaken by a godlike force like Panic. Um, or something like that, some force which is at work within us that overwhelms us and has a godlike character to us on that account. Um, Whereas other loves, they don't have that same sort of character, they don't overwhelm us, they don't give us the same sense of godlike duties, they don't impose the same sense of godlike duties and sacrifices that Eros can. Um, And so... Using that term calls us to be on our guard that we are playing with a force that is greater than ourselves, and we need to be mindful and wary of it. But also,
1: yeah, that is that that's really that's really insightful, and I hadn't picked that. So you're saying it's a we are effectively more passive unwittingly with eros than we are with the others. Yes,
2: the eros has almost a life of its own. Um, it's not just a a virtue that we develop over time or something like that, or um some natural affection it's something that can take us over and can bring us to our ruin, but also can be a sort of playful sprite or a mischievous self that we can um enjoy this relationship with that is fulfilling and um, joyful. Hmm. what do you think matt
0: no i think that's that's right i mean. It- Andrew, somewhat, you know, uh, pedantically, I wonder if romance wouldn't work for Lewis simply because of his um, understanding of the sort of technical history of that term, right? He he actually alludes to his book on courtly love uh, at one point in this chapter, and he was, of course, a, a great expert in what constituted uh the romances and so on and so forth, um, and so I I wonder if he, you know, wants to yeah that's an interesting uh, point sort of keep that as a as a sort of term that still has connotations or reference to that that genre. But I also think it's just strange making, right? Um, and this is erotic love is the one that we think we probably understand the best because um, it's certainly one that even in his day um, people were spending a great deal of their time thinking about and trying to work through. Uh, and so it has the um, it has the added difficulty of being so familiar. Uh, and calling it Eros is, is strange making. It it helps us look anew at this and it allows them to introduce surprising distinctions um, to most people like like the distinction between this sort of force as Alistair described it and uh, sex. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's, that's a helpful heuristic device. Um, so in addition to everything that Alistair said, I think, I think there's sort of pedagogical reasons, uh, why it would make sense yeah. to refer to Eros here. So I, and I've actually, I'm, I'm sure picked this up from Lewis and, uh, uh, but I've, I've, I've done the same thing in my own writing. Like anytime I've mentioned Eros, it has this sort of very specific meaning. I, I mean, something very different from it than just sex, uh, because I think it is something
1: different. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, that, I, 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 I mean, I, that was just an introductory thought, but sure. it, it was, I, that's very helpful actually to see why he's done that on purpose. And and um, I had a sense I probably was missing something, so it's good even to hear what it is. I think that the, the next main thing I picked up, I'd just be interested in your your thoughts on this, because Matt, I might imagine Alistair's thought about this many times, but I've, I've actually read some of the stuff you've said about it, Matt, as well, in your in your books, was the, the, sort of the a lot of the stuff he says both about, um, and I'm going to concatenate them as if they're the same issue, although I know they're kind of not quite, but uh, the stuff he says about seriousness um, and taking eros and taking sex seriously versus seeing the funny side of it or seeing being playful um and pornography you know the point he makes about saying you know, but how can it be pornography because they take it so seriously and saying oh no no that's exactly the problem to take sex too seriously so there's that there's an interesting perspective there on sex as being taken seriously um whether or not he'd make the same comment about pornography today i don't know and then but then mixed in with that there's a lot of comments he makes about the, the kind of comedy of the human body as well and that the body is that which makes us play the buffoon, or the body is like, yeah, to make us realise that we are buffoons, and sort of the ass idea of the body as being a sort of comic feature of us, the oldest joke in the world is that we have a body, or something to that effect, and um, I just think those two things he says about actually seeing the comedy and the levity, which I know are not the same thing, but I think they're connected for him, in both the body and in sex, and in the risk of the abuse of sex and the abuse of the body, sometimes being in taking it too seriously, Whereas I, which I found quite cut against the grain of what I would expect him to say, which was that sometimes this is from not taking these things seriously enough. And I know that particularly on the body side and possibly the erotic side as well, Matt, you've, you've written about this. I just wondered if you had a take on that and, and whether, again, I'm just playing the fool and playing the ignorant one here, but that's because I am ignorant. I, why, why is he doing that? And why does that sound different from the way that we would typically want to encourage a what you might say a higher view or a more serious view of sex. Well, why is he doing that and is he right?
0: Yeah, so I I think there are lots of reasons why he's doing it. This is one of my favorite aspects of this whole chapter. I think Lewis just nails this dimension of bodiliness. Um, I mean calling the body brother ass is just perfect. It's it absolutely crushes it. Um, it you know, this is this is a work that I think is um, not necessarily directly influenced, but heavily influenced by um, Plato's dialogue, The Symposium, uh, which of all the platonic dialogues is the one I know the best. And in, in that dialogue, what you have are you know soaring speeches about Eros and its glories. Um, but they're punctuated by a very weird episode where someone comes down with a case of hiccups right in the middle of it. And it's sort of these hiccups disrupt everything. Um, they change the order of the speeches. Um, it's, it's a sort of bizarre moment in an otherwise highly, highly stylized dialogue. Um, and it has that sort of comic dimension that uh, Lewis is driving at with respect to the body. I think he is right about the need to, um, for certain people... Or individuals to punctuate the um, their their understanding of the body and of sexuality with with an air of levity. You know there there are certain <laughs> you look at like uh, theological or devotional writing that has to do with sexuality. Um, a lot of it's just terrible because it has this you know and our eyes. Were opened and we saw the face of God and one another in the middle of this act, which, which, and it, it you know, it's got this like <laughs> ooey gooey sort of weird spiritualism that goes on. And at some point, that becomes really disconnected from what's actually happening in an erotic act of the sexual type. Um, the uh, Bonhoeffer has a line, I think, in his letters where he says something like, it would—it's a little uncouth to think about the Almighty while in the arms of of your beloved. <laughs> like, like you should probably just be thinking about your beloved, yeah. and that's that's sufficient. Um, but if you if you have this sort of highly stylized view of eros, um, where it becomes a sort of uh, a, an opportunity for transcendence, then the danger with that is that. You lose the sense of particularity. You, you actually lose the sense of um, sort of groundedness to this world until the body reasserts itself. And the body will, whether that's through suffering, whether that's through sort of comedic moments like hiccups that are uncontrollable. Uh, and so I think, like, yeah, so I think that dimension of, of, of the body is um, indispensable. Uh, I, I will say this. When, when we yeah. were ha- right? Sorry. No, well, on. well, One last thought. I, I do think that some of this is contextual. So when I have written about Eros, I've defended it. And I've actually um, in my long essay on why I'm opposed to gay marriage, one of the claims that I made there was that our own culture, uh, our own day and age, our great crisis is that we don't have Eros, um, that we have lost the distinction between Eros and sexuality. And so um, uh, we, we don't have a seriousness about this um, this act and the varieties of love that can be manifested through it. But I think that's because we're 50 years later from what Lewis was writing about and the, um, the seeding of our lives and our society to the demon of Eros, that, the de- that having a demonic character has destroyed it for us. Um, and so I like some, there is some contextualization that I think has to go on here. I'm, I'm, I tend to inflate the seriousness more because I, I worry that we don't have enough of that. Um, but I, I could see how at the beginning of that process, um, the way to avoid demonization is actually to um, emphasize the levity and the comedy.
2: Though to say that, I yeah. think there's on the other side... You could say that there are ways that we do take sex far too seriously certainly for our sense of identity fulfillment expression all these sorts of things we put such a weight upon um, eros we see its demands as absolute things that cannot be resisted or denied and i think also when we think i mean mentioned it Andrew, I think it was, who mentioned um, Lewis's reference to pornography, a particular piece of pornography, as too serious. Um, There is a sort of seriousness that comes with the pornographic concept of sex within our society, which is that sex is seen as a sort of sport that we must be practised at, that we must be adept at, that we must develop this sort of expertise at the practice in itself – and it must be presented in this way that is, um, idealized and in that sort of way that is this pure physical practice, like this sort of Olympian type thing. Um, whereas the comedy that he emphasizes is something that we have a lot harder time recognizing that sex is not a, um, a sport so much as a romp. It's a, it's something that has a, an air of the ridiculous to it. But we take it far too seriously to recognise that.
1: What, so, so? can I, I mean, I, I'm, i I was going to tell a, a silly little little anecdote on this, which is what I nearly interrupted Matt for, but I think it's worth saying anyway. When we were on our marriage prep course, Rachel and I, about 12, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we were being prepared, for, we sort of went through this course, and uh, the couple who were doing it with us said, you know, that, they were joking around, but they went to that text in 1 Corinthians 7 where it says, you know, the only reason you stop having sex is to give yourself to prayer. And they said, and we've concluded from this that basically you should not pray while having sex. <laughs> those two too <are> incompatible. <laughs> which I just thought was a really funny way of, well, they knew, they knew was not quite exegesis, but it was funny anyway. But as, um, and, and so actually, but there is a, but there is a, and they were, I think one of the, I remember the, the first couple that spoke to me before I was married. Who were a young, about four years older than me, a young couple who were sort of speaking openly about their their experience in a way that wasn't tawdry at all, just very helpful. They the very the main thing I remember from that conversation was the the, the lightness of it, and I think that's almost the main thing I'd want to tell an unmarried couple now. Um, would be this is there's a lot of comedy. Don't, don't expect this to be sort of like this sort of a highly intense. But so I, it's, the weird thing is, all that we're, you're saying resonates with my practical experience, but I just find it interesting that. I suppose in hearing having a high view of the idea of having a high view of sex and probably it's the dialectic that Matt is referring to, I think, in your writing, where in a culture that is degrading and debasing something, the instinct is to say, no, look how serious this is. And I'm wondering if Lewis's desire to point out the humour is entirely based on saying this you know, culture has too pristine and prim a view of this or whether there's actually something more Subtle going on that he's not it's not simply a a reference to the fact that you you take this too seriously but it's if you miss the comedy i think that point about you know the distinction between it being an olympian activity versus a romp i I just think that's really interesting i just want but i'm still trying to get to i guess what the this what implications there are for the way we think about sexuality um so i get we might be taking it all too seriously but but where does that where does that bite? You know, where, where's where's the problem within at a sort of spiritual level? Does that mean we are at risk of, uh, you know, idolising it? it? Is it? Do you know what I mean? Or where does where does that kind of come? Where do the chickens come home to roost on that? Something uh, that might I'm asking that to either of you. Something
2: that might be helpful to put this in a bit more of a perspective is the way that Lewis more generally talks about the highest not standing without the lowest, and it's not that he's pushing us to take sex just generally in a more um, light manner, but to hold those two things together. So he talks about sex as something that's very serious. It is the image of union between God and man. It's this pagan sacrament, he calls it, this image of the relationship between the sort of universal he and she um, that's being played out. And it also has this natural significance of being open to procreation. That it's the means by which we enter upon the duties of parenthood. Um, and then also it has the emotional seriousness in the minds of those who are participating. So on all these levels, it's an immensely serious thing. But at the same time, there's this, um, it is a sort of, there is this comic and buffoonery aspect to it alongside that. And so he talks about the paper crown that is being worn as if for this short period of time we're playing within this deep, um, I don't know how you'd best refer to it, but this deep natural um, play that's that's taking place. And we're playing a, a comic role within it but yet the play itself is intensely serious at the same time. There, or there's there's a weight to it. And I think often we confuse weight with um, gravity and seriousness and not having laughter. But yet there is a sort of weightiness that can exist alongside laughter and joy and playfulness and buffoonery. And I think he's trying to create that sort of connection where we have both of those things together and the buffoonery is necessary in order to retain the character of the play that's taking place. And I think this is something that's more interesting within scripture as a whole, that creation is, or sexual relations in places like song of songs are seen as this window into the broader reality of the world where in this almost playful excess, the, um, the singer brings in all these different images of goats don't going down the hillside or, um, these pillars of the temple, whatever it is, and all these things come into play within this context of the relationship between the lover and the beloved. Um, And it helps us to see the world within that context, but it also helps us to see the world within that sort of playful delight that God has when he is engaged with the world, that we can see our own bodies, their ridiculous character, and something of their amusing character, that God, as he... Um, acts in places like Psalm 104 and other places within Job, things like that. There's this, God has a playful relationship to the world. The world is a place of delight, but it's also a place of animals doing funny things. Um, it's a place of um, joyful ridiculousness, and there's something of our entrance into that within sexual relations. That retains the seriousness, but also the elevated, the weighty levity, if that can paradox can take place of um, the creation that God has made and our place within it. So I,
0: I agree with a lot of that, Alistair. One one danger in framing the 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 sort of. Um, comedic effect as a, as a kind of weighty levity or even a p- sense of playfulness is that it ascribes a kind of intentionality to it that that we are going to sort of have a, um, a, a sense of play as we engage in this and so on and so forth. And I don't actually think that that's quite what Lewis is getting at. Um, I think it includes that, but I think Lewis's, the, the problem that Lewis is naming um, is slightly different. Uh, so he says, um, lovers unless their love is very short-lived, again and again feel an element not only of comedy, not only of play, but even of buffoonery in the body's expression of eros. And the body would frustrate us if this were not so. It would be too clumsy an instrument to render love's music unless its very clumsiness could be felt as adding to the total experience of its own grotesque charm a subplot or anti-mask miming with its own hearty rough and tumble what the soul enacts in statelier fashion. Uh, and what, what really grips me about that is that the body would frustrate us if it didn't have a, a sort of built-in clumsiness, that it's it's partly this resistance of the body, that there is, that there is a kind of um, way in which the body acts in, uh, before us, it goes before us. It, it it doesn't do necessarily what we want it to do. It doesn't um, behave in the manner that we think is appropriate for it to behave at all times, um, and that that sort of recalcitrance, that resistance from the body to our loftier aims and purposes, is intrinsic to um, the kind of goodness that eros is meant to point us to that it that it, it discloses something about um, yeah about about eros and about what what the point and end of eros is um, and i and i think if we don't see that that it's not that there is a kind of just acceptance of the buffoonery that it's not even, do I have a deliberate sense of play? It's not even, you know, do I have, have a sense of levity about this? Can I make the right jokes about this realm? It's unless I'm willing to accept, uh, this, this feature of the body, I'm going to go seriously awry here. But one, one other thought just about our discussion to go meta for a second it it's interesting to me and it's, and it's entirely understandable, um, that we in even discussing this have collapsed, potentially collapsed, um, eros and sexuality together. The whole gravitational weight of our thinking, um, pulls us to identify these things rather than to view one as a sort of subspecies or subtype of the other. Um, and I think like to Alistair, to the question of sort of what we take seriously and what we don't take seriously, I think you're absolutely right that we do take sexuality very seriously. Um, and we do view it as a thing that grips us, a thing that is that we're beholden to, that we have to enact if 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 we want to be satisfied Um but that's true of Venus as much as it is of Eros, um, and it's possible to have that without having this other thing, Eros. Um, and I, I worry that even as in our sort of thinking about it, the, the cl- close identification that we have causes us to miss this other thing that is sort of goes above and beyond what um, what sexuality, what what Venus is
1: after. It interests me that he he doesn't just he pushes in both directions in this chapter though because he just I know this is taken into a slightly different area but he he just after he spent quite a long long time on this point about you know bodies nakedness and saying they're not really being as you are they're more like putting on a costume the natural state now post fall is to be a, a clothed person and so there's something comic and charade like about nakedness and all of this stuff a, a lot of things about taking effectively sex and in his terms venus and eros too seriously but but then he he swings and quite sharply pushes the other way um when it comes to marriage and says actually it's not we 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 take sex effectively in in sort of modern english without the uh sort of the greek words behind it he's saying we take sex too seriously in marriage no no one likes like seriously enough and i think that's quite an interesting tack as well because by the time he would got to that point in the chapter i was beginning to think oh he's just sort of saying this whole thing is a, a pantomime but it the excerpt that that struck me i thought was the the bit that, the most useful section of the chapter he said and as we could easily take the natural mystery too seriously so we might take the christian mystery not seriously enough uh, then he says the husband is the head of the wife just insofar as he is to her what christ is to the church he is to love her as christ loved the church read on and gave his life for her this headship then is most fully embodied not in the husband we should all wish to be but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion whose wife receives most and gives least is most unworthy of him is in her own mere nature, least lovable. And he goes on and talks a fair bit about that sort of headship in marriage as, as effectively like a, a crucifixion, which is not a new idea, but it, I think it was a, a fairly shocking way of making the point that the husband who is the most, uh, the, you know, the seriousness of marriage is bound up with the husband being crucified effectively in, in the sort of metaphorical sense and then at the end, when he's just sort of said all these things that obviously sound a bit, uh, you know, old school to modern is, he said, the sternest feminist need not grudge my sex, the crown offered to it, either in the pagan or in the Christian mystery, for the one is of paper and the other of thorns. And so again, the, so having made the comments about the paper crown and the pantomime thing, he says, actually, but that's sex, but marriage itself is incredibly serious. And uh, again, that sort of, you, you guys have read it before, so probably, you know, I don't know whether the surprise uh, is is. You know, you imagine you've adapted to that because you knew what he was going to say. But for me, reading it for the first time yesterday, thinking, "Wow, this is—that's not where I would expect him to go at all." Having just said you're taking this too seriously, but that not seriously enough, and I I think that another fascinating reading he makes in the
2: chapter. Early on in the chapter, he makes the distinction between sexual desire and um, eros. Whereas sexual desire wants the thing itself, sexual relations, pleasure, um, from that, etc. Eros is very much aimed upon a particular woman and not just upon um, and in a way that does not necessarily um, have that desire for pleasure as um, overriding there's without eros sexual desire becomes a fact about ourselves, and he compares it to the idea of almost placing the image of a great scenery within our retina that that is where it's located rather than within the, the outside world whereas with eros it's a fact about the beloved and through eros there's this obliteration of the distinction between giving and receiving etc one of the things that i've found interesting is the way that he explores the fact that the woman in that situation it matters less that she is a woman than the fact that she is herself And I'd be interested to hear particularly Matt's thoughts on this, perhaps how this fits in with discussions of sexuality, which kind of blurs that distinction somewhat, because it seems to be that the fact that the person, the person is desired in themselves, but the fact that they're of a particular sexual kind is also significant for that desire. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts because you've obviously done a lot of work on this.
0: Yeah. Um so before I answer that um I, I on Andrew's question um one one other question that I have and I don't know how ecumenical this book is but um there is at least one major uh denomination, one major branch of Christendom that thinks it is entirely reasonable to have marriage without sex. Um, so if you are Roman Catholic, you think that, um, Mary and Joseph are fully married, but, uh, virgins. Um, and you think that that's, uh, a very, very rare possibility that can be imitated by others throughout history. Uh, Josephite marriages. um, And so partly what I think Lewis is trying to get at is a vision of the sort of erotic that is tied to the body that isn't particularly sexual, that that doesn't boil down to the sexual. Um, So the end of Pearl Landra um, novel that he wrote, I think, 12, 10 years before he wrote this one, um, you know, he has this this sort of Garden of Eden type situation, but he... um, you know, he sees these original figures um, where who are who are naked, who are unclothed and it's intensely moving. But but you, it's never it never has the sort of hint of sexuality, the, 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 the hint of uh, yeah, that the, the nudity or the nakedness is somehow inappropriate um, because we would need to look our look away. Um, and I think, and I think that's the sort of seriousness of marriage that incorporates the levity and the strangeness of sexuality, um, having a view of marriage that disconnects it from the possibility of sexuality might help with that. Um, Alistair, I think related to that, um, the question of sort of the individual and the, the individual being a representative of a type one thing that struck me is he does say that, but then when he what he says is um, in our nakedness, we are representatives of a whole. like our nakedness has a kind of universal universal quality. Um, uh, and so it, it strikes me as and so by nudity, the lovers cease to be solely John and Mary. The universal he and she are emphasized. Um, you could almost say they put on put on nakedness as a ceremonial robe or as a costume for a charade. Uh, and so there, what you have is um, in the sexual desire that is mediated by eros, that is structured by eros. The animating principle is the. Individual. It never sort of ceases to be about the individual and become about oneself or the pleasure that one is pursuing. Um, it it remains that the intentional sort of dimension of it is about the the one that uh, one is pursuing in and through this act. Uh, but when you reach the point of the sexual expression of that pursuit, um, is it sort of approaches this universal dimension and the sexual, the, the the particularity becomes a kind of universality that, that such that the male and the female are incorporated into this grand drama that is, that involves so much more than them. Um, and that's, that's, that I think is, you know, one reason why it is important for sexual activity to be structured by eros to to get at a kind of universality in the right way, namely without losing the particularity of John and Mary, the particularity of the persons and and without, you know, that being just eclipsed by this sort of aim for something else. Right. Because if it's, if it's pleasure that you're after, and Lewis makes his point, right? Like if it's pleasure that you're after, it doesn't matter in one sense, uh, who's, on the other end of it, they're they're just an instrument to gain this experience, the sensation that you want to have, um, and though there may be some variations, by and large, one instrument is going to do as well as the other. Uh, to be perfectly cross, right? But but for 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 young men uh, who are, which is the sort of experience that I know best, um, for young men who are sort of gripped by pornography, um, what you see is one woman does become as good as another, right? They lose the sense of the particularity and, and the sense of the individuality of these people because they're not after persons, they're after pleasure. And so, um, it's, I think incredibly important to retain the the individuality, but it but as as you do that, as that's the leading pro- cause. I think Lewis thinks it does recede, and the act itself takes on a, a very universal dimension.
2: What I find interesting on this particular front that I was interested to hear your perspective on is the way that he talks about eros as like this incoming tide that's goes over all the sandcastles that we have built up within our nature and then eventually overwhelms that sexual part of ourselves. And so that is affected too, but it does not start with that. And so it's not primarily about the fact that we desire a woman um, or anything like that, but rather that um, this particular woman um, is we are drawn to this particular woman by eros. And then as we're drawn to that woman, we start to desire her sexually and not just um, in this more general sense. Now he talks about the way, as you spoke about this universal he and she, and this experience of participating in that bigger sort of natural drama as we are unpeeled in our nakedness. And we relate in that respect but what I was particularly interested in is what happens before that. Is, it, is the fact of our gender something that is significant before we come to the marriage bed as something that eros is drawn towards at a more basic level, not just as something that's um, not just on that level of sexuality, um, or seeking sexual relations. So when we're talking about sexuality, is there something about the other sex that I'm drawn to beyond the fact that I want to sleep with them?
0: Um, there's, there's There are a whole lot of ways for me to get in trouble right right here. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Has do that it, ever stopped you, it, you in the it, past on this <laughs> podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Yes. So, okay. Well, partly, uh, partly this is, it's, it's, it's an impossible subject to take up these days without thinking about, um, these sort of questions and debates about what's happening in same sex attraction. Um, because there is a way in which if I answer it one direction, um, it problematizes or makes more difficult certain commitments potentially, that I would have on the nature of same sex sexual attraction, same sex erotic desire, and so on. Um, I do think that there is, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer this question. I've, I've written a paper that I gave at Evangelical Theological Society last year that that takes up these things that says it in a. my view in a far more nuanced way than I would be able to say here. Um, Here's, here's, I think what I want to say. I think there is uh, that gender does play a role in the initial stages of Eros. I don't think it's disconnected from uh, the person's sex who we are noticing Um, who we, we are being drawn to, um, yeah. And I, and I, and I think that it's, but I also don't think that that just entails that, um, obviously we're sort of drawn to all persons of that gender or sex. Sorry, that's, that's really not a good answer. Um, partly I feel like there's, like I'm walking through a minefield. And so I I don't really want to answer <laughs> Probably because you
2: are in the current context. I
0: mean,
2: I mean yeah. I mean, thanks I'd, for that, Alistair. What I want to say is that what I would want to defend is the fact he says um, this erotic desire for someone in this first instance, the fact that the woman is a woman matters less than the fact that she is herself. But what I'd want to add to that is to say that She could not truly be herself were she not a woman. Um, And so it's not primarily this desire for a sexual relation with a generic woman. Um, But there is a particularity. um, But also that her character as a woman is what makes that particularity, is part of what constitutes her in her particularity.
0: Yeah, you should have just said that and not put me on the hot seat because then I wouldn't be able to say, like, I agree with that, Alistair. I think I think that's exactly and right. In, and in some
2: ways, I think picking up on this point, there is something that can we can feel a sense of being drawn to people, even of our own own of our own sex, in a way that is not that is not um a desire to have relations with them, but is something that is very much constituted by the fact that they are a man, um, that that is constitutive of who they are in themselves. Right. And that, that is something of what makes us want to be around them, to um, spend time with them, to learn from them, to have that sort of interaction with them.
0: Right. So now that you've said the really controversial part, I will say I agree. <laughs> what One way in which I have framed this privately is I think it's actually... Um, somewhat possible, though enormously dangerous, to have a non-sexual Eros for members of the same sex. And if you think that Eros is the sort of thing that can come untethered from sexuality, then that becomes a reasonable position to take. If you think that, for instance, Eros is the sort of thing that might explain a certain sort of response to Michelangelo's David... Um, uh, such that, you know, in responding to Michelangelo's David, it's not simply the um, the size of the sculpture or the quality of the sculpture. There's something about the form of the male, uh, as Michelangelo presents him, that awakens a kind of interest and response from all human beings. Um, but we are so, like, the, we are so sexualized. We are so... Um so quick and prone to collapse those two together that I think I like that statement is impossible for people to grasp appropriately and, and to understand um, because because it just sounds like what I'm saying is, is really crazy and I don't think it is.
2: I'd agree so, with that.
0: So there you have it, Andrew. You've been very quiet. Any closing thoughts uh, to, to take us out?
1: I I enjoy watching you guys dig yourselves holes, <laughs> and I also enjoy any conversation that ends with Matt saying, "So here's what I think." But my guess is that everybody in the human race is too sexualized to understand. <laughs> 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 it's just come on. So I'm I'm very much very much enjoying uh, being the rest of the human race at this point and, and living. But no, I really 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 fascinating discussion. And I, see a lot of what you're saying um but felt like that i had to make that that quip just it was too good an opportunity to pass up but no it's been it's been a really great discussion and I'm, i just again if you haven't read the book i think you really should uh whether you agree with everything we've said looking into it or not I, it is it is very thought-provoking and helpful and if you have read the book we hope that you've found some of these remarks constructive in their own way as well
0: Well, thanks for that. Um, And I suppose I've been pressured into finding at some point some venue to publish that paper from last year. So as to clarify uh, what I've just said as much as I can. Um, If you've been listening...
1: The Alistair whom you gave
0: to me told me to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Alistair may not survive the next time that we meet, just just so everyone is clear for that one. Uh, Thanks for that, Alistair. Um, No, seriously, for those uh, who are listening... At home, we do hope that you have enjoyed and benefited from the discussion. Do encourage you to read the book. It's, it's, it's an excellent work. We're very grateful for Lewis and, and for uh, this work. And it's been very edifying for us, I know, to, to read it. And we hope that you've enjoyed the discussions about it. Um, if you have enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be great. Uh, we have a Patreon account that helps sort of pay for our sound guy and various other expenses that come along with doing this sort of thing so if you're interested in that that is in the show notes at muir orthodoxy Uh, but otherwise we are very grateful for your patronage and your support and we look forward to talking again with you all soon